as dads or uh, in your jobs, there's always the option of a stand-up comedy routine. <laughs> there is a certain irony about having a young man awaiting the birth of his firstborn, reading about a passage where uh, the baby arrives because the, before the midwife, uh, because they're coming so vigorously. All the best, Stefan. Um, <laughs> So, hopefully you've been able to understand uh, that passage. If you didn't get the order of it, it's midwives first, Moses second, Midian third. And um, you may have the passage in front of you. Uh, That would be great if you do, but don't worry if you you don't. It's a pretty familiar story. I suspect you've possibly seen Prince of Egypt. But we're going to be thinking as we uh, continue in this uh, series that Rob started for us last week, thinking about the book of Exodus. To know me, or to really know me, you need to know some of my story. You need to know who I am, maybe some of where I come from. I've spoken over the years numerous times in this church, and I think I may have mentioned once or twice that I come from Yorkshire in England. No, okay, you'd like me to continue with talking about Yorkshire? (laughs) Uh, In fact, I describe myself on Instagram, uh, I think my um, username is Yorkshire Kiwi, Uh, and that's that's often the way that I try and describe myself. I find that using Yorkshire rather than England usually is preferred by people. I don't know what that is about the English. Uh, You may have heard me talk about coming from the same village as Samuel Marsden, something that I'm very proud of. People respond in different ways. Some people go, oh, that's great. Some people go, Oh, he was the flogging parson, wasn't he? Uh, The guy that brought Christianity to New Zealand. Um, If it goes pretty pear-shaped in that conversation, I can remind you that Samuel Marsden was the man that brought grapes into the church for the purpose of growing wine. You can't see me. That's that's exactly why I did it. (laughs) Okay, that's fine. Cool. Thanks, Cathy. So Samuel Marsden brought grapes for the purposes of uh, growing wine in New Zealand. Uh, Many of you know my wife Jen is Northern Irish and 13 and a half years ago we moved from the UK to New Zealand uh, for my work, uh, working with Tertiary Students Christian Fellowship. But I haven't often in this context talked about my roots beyond that, my whakapapa if you like. My maternal side of the family is a mix of English and Welsh, and I often joke about how I've transfused the Welsh bit out of me. Um, That's because I'm English. Um, That is a joke if you're wondering, but... (laughs) My paternal, so my dad's side of the family, is a bit more unusual. Let's have the next picture. This is my grandmother and her family. See, my great-grandmother, the lady... On, the, on that side, the right, um, was called Marika. She was Greek. My great-grandfather, the rather austere man in the middle, named Sisag, was Armenian, which explains uh, why my family experience is somewhat akin to my big, fat Greek wedding. If you come for a meal at our house, uh, there's lots of shouting, not so many throwing plates or things like that, but it's a loud experience. My grandmother is the lady on the far right in the back row. If you know your history about the Armenians, you'll know that the day before the Anzac campaign began on the shores of Gallipoli and Turkey, Ataturk, 
who was the first president of Turkey, began a systematic campaign of genocide against the Armenian people in Turkey. And it's estimated, no one really knows, that between one and one and a half million people, Armenians, were killed. You go to the next slide. These are some of the more acceptable pictures that I could provide. They're horrific, but there are far more horrific memories of what happened. My great-grandfather, Sisag, fled Turkey with his family and just two possessions, a trowel to bury any of the family members who were killed, and his Bible. They became refugees in Lebanon, which is where, years later, my grandma met my grandfather, her English husband, during the war. If you want to know about me, you need to know an important part of my family background is that I come from a tradition of people who, A, love the Bible, that was the only possession my great-grandfather chose to take with him, and who have experienced immense suffering. Today, as we come to the passage that has been given to me, and I recognize it's a very long passage, familiar stories in Exodus, stories that you probably remember from the Prince of Egypt, we're going to encounter Moses and the Israelites. We're going to hear some pretty horrific stories, particularly on Mother's Day, as we start the journey with Moses through Exodus. But these stories help us understand who Moses is, and more importantly, who God is. So we've had that long section read to us. We're going to go through it, not verse by verse, don't worry. I want my lunch as well. But we're going to go through section by section. There are three simple sections, and each section has a simple lesson for us. So the first section, a new king. And actually, it goes back a bit before the bit that the guys read, verses 8 to 22 of chapter 1. To understand the first section, you have to go back into last week's passage a little and to understand or know the story of Joseph. If you don't know the story of Joseph, Andrew Lloyd Webber has his Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Uh, You'd be better reading the book of Genesis that tells you the story. But in verse 8 of this chapter, we read that a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Put simply, a new king had come into power and he didn't know or care about the past. He wanted to do things his way and so the relationship between God's people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians just gets worse and worse. Pharaoh or the king gets upset that the Israelites are growing in number, they're multiplying, and in his mind, they are becoming a threat to Egypt. So what does he do? Well, with something that we see in the echoes of history, he creates labor camps, forcing them to do work, building cities for himself. If you have a a Bible, look at some of the words that are used to describe this in verses 11 to 14. He oppressed them with forced labor. The Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor. You see, the Israelites were being subjected to bitter drudgery of hard, oppressive work with ruthless taskmasters. But the plan doesn't work. The Israelites keep on growing in number. And so Pharaoh comes up with his next plan, which again has echoes in history. This time, it's genocide. 
You see, hatred and bitterness, when it's at root in any of us, can lead to all kinds of evil. Pharaoh hatches this plan. He's going to kill all the boys. So he says to the midwives, during childbirth, if it's a boy, kill them. And if it's a girl, let them live. I can't sugarcoat that. That is awful. Now, I'm not really wanting to foreign languages. I don't know the biblical languages, but in my study, uh, I found something which I thought was particularly interesting today. So I don't like to get too technical about the original language, but since it's Mother's Day, and this somewhat relates, I'm told, I'll be just close your ears for a second as you expect your baby any moment. Well, not hopefully any moment, but... The word there in the text that says delivery stool refers to two literal stones which the Israelite women crouched on whilst giving birth. Doesn't sound very comfortable, but then again, neither does childbirth. So special thanks to all of you mothers for all that you've been through. Let's get back to the story. You've got two midwives. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, don't think about it too much. You've got two midwives who are different. Actually, their names mean beauty and splendor. They show great beauty and great splendor. It's been said that all it takes for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. And so we have two people, two God-fearing midwives, who decide we're not going to do nothing. We're going to do something. And they make their stand. They behave differently. They fear God. God, the giver of life, and they revere him above all else. Maybe there are lessons for us today as both abortion at the start of life and euthanasia at the end of the life are part of our everyday society now. Pharaoh wants to wipe out the people of God, but his efforts are in vain. It's not dissimilar to what we read later on at Jesus' birth when King Herod comes along and says, Look, get rid of the boys but again with the same unsuccessful results. And so the midwives tell their story and we read in verse 20 that God was kind to the midwives. The people increased and became numerous and God gave them families of their own. And here's our first lesson from this first section. In the midst of infanticide, God is still kind. If you like, in the midst of genocide, God is still kind. It is so easy for us to think that in the midst of such awful suffering, God is absent or he's apathetic. No, he is not. In fact, God's kindness throughout this book is one of the themes. It's easy for me to think in my family's experience of Armenian genocide that God was unkind. Or in the midst of a cancer diagnosis, in the midst of the global COVID-19 pandemic, or any kind of suffering, and I know there are a number of people suffering in this congregation, it's easy for us to think, God is unkind. No, he's not. And I say that with the greatest love and respect. I wonder if you know the name Corrie Ten Boom. Corrie was a Dutch lady. Her family ran a watchmaker's shop, shop in the beautiful city of Haarlem in the Netherlands. During World War II, they protected tons of Jews. 
hiding them in what was known as the hiding place. If ever we're able to travel again and you can go and visit the Netherlands, well worth going to visit that place. But eventually, she and her family were betrayed. They were arrested. She and her father and sister were taken to Ravensbrück, to the concentration camp there. Just a short time later, her father died. And a bit later on, her sister Betsy died in the concentration camp. Corrie was actually released because of an administrative error. And she went on to tell her story, a remarkable one, of experiencing God's kindness in the worst experiences of humanity. And her response, eventually, of forgiveness. And she talked very honestly, or talked very honestly while she was alive about it. Well worth reading her stuff. Corrie ten Boom once said this, There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Think of it. A lady who experienced Ravensbrück, the death of her father, the death of her sister, the worst that the Nazis did. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Second section, a new baby, verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2, the bit that Ian read for us. You see, in the midst of Pharaoh's decree that every Hebrew boy must be thrown into the river Nile, we read that a Hebrew woman has a Hebrew baby boy. And you can imagine, as you're expecting, you're hoping, oh, this will be a girl. I hope this is going to be a girl. Our lives will be much easier. And so she has a baby boy. And we're told that for three months, Moses' mum hides him. Now, I have to say, Jen was the one that led the way in terms of the parenting, still does in our family. But even I know that at three months, it's very hard to hide a baby. They make a lot of noise and make a fair bit of mess. And so in chapter 2 and verse 3, we read, when she could hide him no longer, she got a basket. She must have thought, what should we call this? Oh, We'll call it a Moses basket, uh, the original Moses basket. Uh, again, without wowing you too much with my non-existent uh, knowledge of the original languages, it's, it's actually the word ark. And the only other time it's used in the Bible is for Noah's ark, a place of rescue and safety. So the Moses basket places the child in it and puts it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. What must she have felt? As a dad, I cannot imagine to give up your child, to place him in a basket of waters that certainly had crocodiles in them, little shelter from the sun. Who knows what the currents might do? Who knows what might happen? The Bible talks elsewhere about a mother's love and God's love in this way in the book of Isaiah. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. I think one of the things I love about seeing mothers in action is the compassion that they have that we as guys just don't in the same way. So she follows the law. She puts the baby in the river Nile as the instructions are, but trusts Moses into God's protective care. She trusts that God is in control of all circumstances, not knowing how they will play out. And it just so happens that Pharaoh's daughter comes along at the right time. And it just so happens that Moses' sister is stood off 
watching what's going on. And so she says, look, would you like someone to nurse her? And it just so happens that Moses' mum is then asked, and even better, paid to raise her own child. Don't get ideas, mother. You see, God's divine initiative is interacting with human action and bringing about God's perfect plan. You see, God is the unseen controller of all history and all circumstances, not just the highs, though he's in control of those, but also the lows. Not just arbitrarily, but purposefully. God has a plan. The universe isn't out of control, though we may question and query what he is doing. We can trust him and thank him. So what's the second lesson? There it is. In the midst of painful circumstances, God is still in control. Now, you might rightly turn to me and say, well, Ben, that's very easy and glib of you to say that. I can tell you it's not. I can tell you it's a truth that I not only believe, but I'm living out in my own life. And I don't really want to major on this, but just to assure you that I still believe in the midst of painful circumstances that God is still in control. Six weeks ago, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. I woke up on my birthday, got a phone call from my dad telling me that he'd been diagnosed with cancer. I've not seen him for nearly two years. Don't know when I'll see him next. We think, God willing, that he will be okay, but next Sunday he goes for surgery. I know he's terrified. He's trusting in Jesus, but he hates needles, so he's terrified. But it brings the question back to me. Do I still believe that God is in control? And I can say hand on heart, yes, I do. In recent weeks in my work amongst students, I have been under immense pressure as I've seen and been involved in some of the most challenging and painful situations I've seen in my work of nearly 20 years with students. Do I still believe that God is in control? Absolutely I do. Sure, we might wonder what is God doing? I read the Bible each day or try to. And in recent weeks, I've been reading the book of Job. So you read Job's story you're reminded that God is still in control even, then, even when we feel like all hell is breaking loose. In the midst of painful circumstances, God is still in control. Third section, from verse 11 to the end of chapter two, a new start. See, the story continues. Moses, the Hebrew who's been adopted by an Egyptian and raised in the king's palace, is now grown up. We know from the book of Acts that he's 40 years old. He's going to become God's chosen leader to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And yet, one day as he's going along about his business, he sees the injustice happening against his own people. An Egyptian mistreating an Israelite. And so Moses' motives are right, but his reactions are wrong. And he makes a decision. I was going to say a rash decision, but actually he thinks about it first, looks around first to check he gets away with it and thinks he's got away with it. But as later Moses writes in the book of Numbers, be sure your sin will find you out. And the following day, be sure his sin did find him out. 
It leads to his people questioning him. Eventually, Pharaoh finds out and wants to kill him. So Moses runs for his life and flees to Midian. Now, I have to say, as I was preparing this section on this talk, I thought, what on earth is this all about? Why does God allow Moses to become a murderer before he becomes God's leader? I have to say, it's puzzling. It actually gets even more puzzling to our Western ears as Moses has this new start. He goes away and he meets seven daughters of a priest of Midian by a well. Some shepherds come along to move them away and Moses, the hero, comes to their rescue and waters their flock. Hey, if you're wanting to find a wife, that's one of the more interesting ways of doing it, isn't it? You see, an act of kindness has led to the act of marriage and Moses marries Zipporah I could tell you a bit more about her her name means warbler or twitterer Uh, I don't think we'll dwell on that today they have a son whom they named Gershom which literally means resident alien Moses' story and then we read that the king of Egypt dies You see, Israel is still crying out for a deliverer, for someone to rescue them from their slavery. And God hears and God remembers his promise and his people. It's all a bit puzzling for us. What does this mean? What difference does this make to us? Why does God allow this to happen? Why does God choose a murderer to lead his people? Well, maybe it's to remind us that all leaders... All humans, apart from one, are ultimately flawed. Maybe it's to remind us that God always keeps his promises. The lesson to my mind seems to be that in the midst of a puzzling situation, God is still concerned. Maybe you're here this morning thinking, what on earth is God doing with this world? How can he let COVID-19 ravage the world? So we look at India, some of the neediest parts of the world. It's puzzling for us. And yet we know that God still shows concern. I want to be careful not to become too political here, but maybe at times we've wondered why God allows such and such a leader in different parts of the world and sometimes in our own to take a lead. Why does God put those people in places of prominence? We can say, Look, it's puzzling, but God still shows concern. Or there are any number of situations where we might scratch our heads and say, what was that all about? Well, don't lose your head and don't forget that God is still concerned. So that's the story of the midwives, Moses and Midian. Moses and the Israelites, where they came from, their background. You might say, well, that's all well and good, Ben. But so what? In the New Testament, Jesus reminds us that all of Scripture, all of the Bible, speaks of him. It points forward to him. When Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, he begins with Moses and the prophets and tells all of the things that they say about Jesus. So how does this story or these stories speak of Jesus? Well... I think the headings fit again. You see, the story of Moses is about a new king, a new baby, 
and a new start. Isn't that the story of Jesus? That this new king, the king of kings, comes as a new baby. So that each of us, though we have done wrong, though we have sinned and turned our backs on God, can have a new start with him. If you want to understand who Jesus is, why he came, what he's done, the story of Moses can help us. We've just celebrated Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross and in the tomb. As Jesus died on the cross, we can see that in the midst of the worst suffering, infanticide for Moses, the cross for Jesus, that God is still kind. God demonstrates his love on the cross for us as he takes the punishment for our sins. As Jesus hangs on the cross in the midst of the most painful circumstances, God is still in control. This wasn't plan B, but this was God's rescue plan for all humanity. And no doubt the disciples, as they stood looking at Jesus dying on the cross, were going, what on earth is this all about? This is a puzzling situation. What on earth is God doing? We can know that God is still concerned. You see, Moses is going to be a great deliverer, and we'll see that in the coming weeks. But he's not the best deliverer. The ultimate deliverer, rescuer, is the one whom Moses is pointing forwards to, the one who we've worshipped today. And so may God help each of us to trust in him for our rescue. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us through it. Thank you for the story of Moses, the midwives, the painful experiences of the murder, but also your purposes and plans for him in Midian. Thank you for the way that Moses points us forward to Jesus and help us to trust in him to be our rescuer. We pray this in his mighty and strong name. Amen.